Romans chapter 7, verse 1. Or do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the member the members of our body, to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What shall we say then is a lost sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment sin would become utterly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now... No longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. And I find the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself, with my mind, am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. And Father, we thank you for this word. We ask that you would help us now as we work through it line by line. And it's in Christ's good name that we pray. Amen. So chapter 7 sort of is a different feel from the rest of Romans. To refresh our minds, the first three chapters of Romans, Paul is making the case That all humanity has fallen short of the glory of God. We are all sinners. We sin. We're sinners not because we sin, but we sin because we're sinners. We are born of Adam. We are born into sin and sin nature. Chapters 4 and 5, he goes over that that the sinner is justified through faith. That God declares the sinning sinner justified through faith that the righteousness of God is imputed to us through faith in the cross. And it results in peace with God, not the peace of God, certainly the peace of God would flow from this, but that because God has declared us justified, we now have peace with God. We're no longer enemies of God through our sin. 
And then as we get to chapter 6, Paul begins to lay out the victorious life that the Christian has. I shared about my dream car, the Volkswagen Bug. And when I bought my first car, after I went in there with my wad of, of cash and I paid for the guy six weeks later, the state of California sent me that beautiful pink slip with my name on it. That when we've accepted Christ as Savior, our pink slip is no longer owned by sin and death. But that Christ has our pink slip. And if you're like me and you read through chapter 6, it can be kind of discouraging because if we're honest with ourselves, there's still some struggles in our heart as Christians. And as Paul goes into chapter 7, he gets very vulnerable with us. He, he explains and shares his own struggles. Because when you become a Christian, the Spirit of God comes and dwells in you. But your carne, asada, the flesh, we're in Southern California. When I hear meat, I think carne asada. Our flesh still resides. And so now in our body, we have these roommates, the, the Spirit of God and our flesh. And they hate each other. And we embody them. And they're at war. And there's a struggle there. And this chapter is a tongue twister to read through. And you see Paul and scholars, it cracks me up. They start wrestling with this. Who's Paul talking about? Certainly he can't be talking about himself because he's an apostle. He was, he was good. He was sinless. Sir, maybe he's talking about his life before Christ or the life before Christianity. But the problem is in the second part, it's all in present active indicative. First person singular. Paul in this section uses the term I, me, or my 30 times. Who Paul is speaking about is Paul during the time of his writing. And I don't know why some scholars have such a difficult time with this. I find it terribly comforting. It's like, oh, there's hope for me. The struggle I'm going through isn't unique to me. It's, it's unique to humanity. It's unique to all Christians. And so as we work through this, my, my prayer is that I bring some clarity and hope that we see this as Paul laid it out for us as a spirit intends. This week has been a long week. I, I've been wrestling through this. A lot of times I have a lot of notes, like the text just sort of lays itself out and I can go, uh, verse one points one, verse two. Oh, here's a couple points. Here's a funny story. None of that this time. This is like, I'm like brainstorming, wrestling with the text, searching everything. How did other pastors handle it? I know one of my friends is going through this text, so I go to his, his website, and he's got it manuscripted out. And the first line I, I read of him is saying, I love this chapter because with my dyslexia and it being all over the place, suddenly it just comes together. And I'm like, I had to text him like, brother, I hate that line you just said because I have a German brain. Everything is very linear. Give me dots to connect. And so I'm wrestling through this. What's the theme that flows through it? And really, the first six verses tie into the previous statement. And so he begins by making this, this illustration. He says, verse 1, Or do you not know that the law has jurisdiction over the person as long as he lives? He asks this question. There's, there's a parenthetical statement in there, which he says, For I'm speaking to those who know the law. If you're using the New American Standard, I, I really didn't look at the other translations, how they handled the capitalization of the word law. In the New American Standard, here they have law in lowercase. When we get to verse 4, you'll see that law then goes to capital letters. This is a, a, a translation or a translator sort of based on the context. What do they think it is? Most believe that the first three verses, he's talking about just the general law. To, to the readers that he's addressing, it would have applied to the Jewish person under the mosaic law it would have applied to the roman under roman law and he basically says those of you who know the law those of you who experience the law virtually every human knows human law and he says or do you not know brethren that the law only has jurisdiction over you while you live if you follow the news and if you like all of us do we see the reports and every now and again there's there's some heinous crime that happens. Ask us all, like, what, what, what caused this? What do we know about it? Why did they, this happen? And at the end of the thing, the person dies that causes it. Now, very rarely, almost never, 
There's no legal case that follows that incident. Why is that? Well, the person who is guilty, they're gone. The law can't inflict any more punishment on that person. The the law only applies to them while they're alive. Now, sometimes there's crimes where the law will go through sort of a follow-up just to determine, are there any more threats? Was there any more, are there any more suspects connected to this incident? But when you die, the, the law has no teeth. And he says, the illustration he uses to, to clarify this point is in verse 2. He says, for the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. This would apply to both the Jewish law and the Roman law in our law today. That a husband and wife, they have certain obligations. The law says there are certain responsibilities. Certain things you're obligated to, certain things you're not obligated to. And he says, so long as the spouse, or in this case, is a married woman, is, as long as her husband is a living, is, as long as her husband's living, she's bound to him. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law. This is sort of the theme, this, this releasing. She's set free. She's no longer bound. She's no longer obligated to the things that she was obligated to now that her husband is dead. Verse 3, so then if while her husband is living and she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is not, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Paul's making this principle. He's using the law, this practical illustration, husband and wife. If a, if a woman enters into a relationship with another man while she's married, she becomes an adulteress. But if the husband dies, she can do the very same thing, but she's released from the the responsibilities that the law has on her. And it's totally okay for her to remarry and to join another man following the death of her husband. Paul's not speaking about marriage here. He's 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 using an illustration that he wants to build from in verse four. We see the therefore, of course, when we see a therefore, we ask what the therefore is there for in this case. The therefore is here because of all of the preceding verses, at least the preceding four, maybe all the way up into verse 20 of the, the previous chapter. He says, because of all of this stuff, therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law, capital now, now he's speaking Mosaic law. You were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. So he makes his case. You've, you've died. The, the, the line sort of shifts. In the previous illustration, it follows the woman. The woman is sort of the main character. There she's going. She's married. She's married. Somebody else dies. That somebody else is her husband. That when he dies, she's released. Now the illustration sort of changes because the person that we're following is yourself the believer in christ and it's not the law that dies it says that you died therefore my brethren you were also made to die to the law through the body of christ so that you may be joined to another now now this dying takes place if we remember back from romans chapter 6 verse 3 we read or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into christ have been baptized into his death now as paul unpacks this dealing with the law That for anyone who is a Christian, to become a Christian, that means that you've responded to the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus died according to the scriptures for your sins. He was buried and that on the third day he rose from the dead. And so when you come to the cross, when you recognize what Jesus has done and you believe, what you're doing is you're dying because you look back to the cross And you're saying that Jesus on the cross was my substitute. This is substitutionary atonement. That his death on the cross was for me. That as the law was being inflicted upon him, it was for me. And so I'm dead to the law. The law has fulfilled its purpose to execute judgment on evil. And so we're told that when Jesus died on the cross, if you're a Christian, that means that you've identified with that death. That his death was your death and we died and we're no longer under the law, but we're united to Christ. We're no longer in Adam, as Romans 5, 12 says, but we're in Christ, this new body. 
And he says that you're in the body of Christ so that you may be joined to another to him who was raised from the dead in order that you might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. So we see fruit twice, right? You are identified with Christ if you're a Christian. As you identify with Christ, as you're paired with him, you now will produce fruit for God. The contrast is in your flesh that you'll produce fruit for death. To help us understand this, I want us to go over to Galatians chapter 5. In Galatians chapter 5, Galatians is often referred to as a mini Romans. Paul wrote it, likely one of his first letters that he ever wrote. And when we get to Galatians chapter 5, verse 18, we're going to read about the the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. I I could spend hours speaking on this. This was one of my... um, In advanced Greek, this was, I have like a hundred page paper on this. So I'm going to try not to get long winded, but I love this section. And he starts out in verse 18. But if you are led by the spirit in our English understanding, it's very easy to misread this. If because if kind of means if like you may be doing it or you may not be doing it in the Greek. When we see, uh, how can I explain this the clearest? And when we see if in the English, In the Greek, there's upwards of four or five different options for how you could understand that conditional statement. They go in classes, first class, second class, third class. Those are the most common. I think there's a fourth and a fifth, but I don't want to get into that here. I'll say that for Deborah in the Greek class. But this is a first class conditional statement. So this if could be translated since. It's in the if and you are. So he starts out by saying, But if you are led by the spirit, since you're led by the spirit, you are no longer under the law. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are really, if you write in your Bible, you should circle the R. The deeds of the flesh are plural. This is literally a smorgasbord. This is a a, a buffet. You You can choose any one of these. And he lists the fruit of the flesh. As he refers to in Romans, we see immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing. And I love this phrase. And things like these mean there's a whole bunch more. Don't look for an out. There's all kinds of deeds of the flesh. This is not an exhaustive list. This is this that last phrase covers everything else. And then he says, of which I forewarn you, just just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I totally believe that a person who is a Christian, their salvation is secure. You didn't earn your salvation. Can't lose your salvation by something you do. You're secure based on the work of Christ. However, as a carnal Christian, which I was for many years, I'm thankful that God does not assure us in our carnality. So when I, I I don't know about you, I'm sure none of you deal with any of this stuff, but man, I, I, I can identify with a lot of these deeds of the flesh. There are ones that are like, oh yeah, I struggle there. (laughs) Outburst of anger, man. I mean, I drive in California. How can you not have outburst of anger? You know, it's like, yeah. Like all of these things that are still churning. But I really wrestled with like some of these were bad for me after I became a Christian. And I'd read stuff like the one who practices such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It would stop me in my tracks. Asking the question, am I even a Christian? Of course I was a Christian. (laughs) Conviction is something that's beautiful. If you have the spirit of God, God can convict you like nothing else. Because there's this war under the surface between our flesh and the spirit of God, which dwells within us. But then he goes on to say, verse 22, but the fruit of the spirit is circle. That is if you write in your Bible, I have it circled is I have circled are and I have a line between the two. 
The reason that this is so significant is the fruit of the Spirit is not a buffet line. The fruit of the Spirit is singular, that these nine items listed, they are one. As we yield our lives to the Spirit of God, His fruit will bear out in our lives. All of these things will manifest themselves. We can't say, oh, you know what? My goal today is I'm just going to try to produce more love. I'm going to try to produce more patience. Oh, never pray that oh, I want more patience prayer because then you know what's going to happen is you get tried with a lot of stuff that you have impatience over. But all of these things will begin to produce. It's singular. And he lists the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. I've traveled the world, I've been to a lot of countries, and I've never, ever been to a country that any one of these nine things were outlawed. You go to the deeds of the flesh, and there's almost a law for every single one of those things in almost every single nation, that those things are illegal at some level wherever you take it. But the fruit of the Spirit, there is no law. He goes on to say, verse 24, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have been crucified Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, since we live by the Spirit, first class condition, let us also walk by the Spirit. Now, this is critical. This word walk is a military term, stoigemen. It's the idea of people in ranks keeping in step with one another. As a SEAL instructor, it was far more fun. As a student, it was horrible. Going through SEAL training, one of the things you do with a group of six or seven guys is you carry a boat on your head. It is heavy. It is miserable. And as, a stu- as an instructor, we would drag the boats all around, and you'd hear grown men whimpering in pain. Because as they're running, they're all out of step, and the boat is slamming up and down, and one guy's stepping up, the other guy's stepping down. Then that boat slams on your head. At the end of Hell Week, Guys will have big scabs and bald spots on their head. It's miserable. And we know that if we can get them out of sync, we'll certainly get a quitter. Now, what gets difficult is when these guys work together and when they're walking and they stay in step so that when they all go up, they all go up together. When they all come down, they all come down together. And it still hurts, but it hurts way less. So Paul here, what he's saying is, since we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. You have the flesh and you have the Spirit within you. The Spirit of God is leading you one way. If you indulge yourself in the flesh and let your flesh go crazy, you're going to be out of step and it's going to get painful for you. saying, get in step with the Spirit. And as you live your life in step with the Spirit, His fruits will begin to bear in your life. And you'll begin to see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I'll never forget as I became a Christian, as I started living my life and I was exposed to something. And the way I reacted, I had like the fruit of the spirit in my reaction. But my mind's telling me I'm crazy. It's like, how can I be reacting like this? I should be freaking out right now. But I'm not. And so here's this, this tension, this contrast. So I'll get back to Romans chapter 7. So back to Romans chapter 7. So as we see the deeds of the flesh, the fruit of the Spirit, Romans chapter 7, verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may be joined to another to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. You've been set free, as he describes in Romans 6. You're no longer a slave to sin. You're now a slave to Christ. And as you walk with him, you'll bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions, which were aroused by the law, were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. And so... This law, we see that the law arouses something in us. As I studied this week, about four days ago, I read or heard, I can't remember, a pastor that was teaching on this. And he said, don't think of pink elephants. Do you know what I've been thinking about for the last four days? (laughs) Pink elephants. Why am I thinking about pink elephants? I don't even know if a pink elephant exists. 
so I have like a little pony image in my brain that's like an elephant, and it's pink and it's plastic, and I can't shake it. And the reason is because he said, don't think about it. And so I hear, don't think about something, or don't do this, don't do that. Something within me that says, they say, don't do that. That's what I want to do. That's what I want to do. Never thought about a pink elephant before four days ago when the guy said that. Now this elephant will not leave my head. And the law of rules, they arouse this and produces rebellion. But now we have been released from the law. It's like fishing. You go fishing. You catch a bass. You hold it up. You take a picture. And you hey, look at this bass. I've never done this, actually. I've only seen pictures. Then you release the bass. I was always a trout fisherman, and I never released anything. It's like I catch them, I eat them. But it's this idea that you're no longer on the hook of the law. You've been released. You've been set free. Don't continue to go back and subject yourself to the system of religion, of rules, using the law incorrectly. He says, having died to that by which we were bound so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. And I believe that Paul was intending from this point going straight to Romans chapter eight, verse one. He says the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. If we were to go to Romans chapter eight, verse one and work our way through to verse, I don't know, 17, 23. The spirit is mentioned a ton of times showing how the Christian life in the process of sanctification is is connected to the spirit of God residing in you and changing you and conforming you into the image of Christ. But at this point, as he writes this, the newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter, everything changes in verse seven. Paul hasn't really been personal up to this point. We, we see as in verse 1 where he says, for I'm speaking to those who know the law. There's been a couple of these sort of parenthetical statements where Paul uses the word I. But the last time we really saw Paul personal back in Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, where he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation for those who believe. And he's very personal there. Then he begins his, his legal case, the doctrine of Christianity, explaining his belief system. And as he gets to this point, explaining the spirit's role within the life, he gets personal with us in verse seven to the end of the chapter. Some 30 times he uses present active indicative. I, me or my speaking of him and what he's going through. He asks the question, says he's been making this case against the law, that the law, all it does is, is it exposes sin and it it arouses sin. So he says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? And he says, may it never be. Just like he asked a question in Romans 6, chapter, verse, Romans 6, verse 1 and 2, and then again in 15, he responds both times. God forbid it, may it never be. The same question, what shall we say? Is the law sin? He says, may it never be. He says, on the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had said, if the, for if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. He says, no, the law is not sin. The law is wonderful. Because the sin that's there, and he mentions coveting. I don't know why he mentions coveting. Paul, this Pharisee of Pharisees, as you look at the Ten Commandments, many of them are external, things that you measure from the outside. And he recognizes that he was becoming an actor in religion, that he was putting on the appearance of the outside. But when you get to coveting, how do you measure covetousness? That's inside. Only I can see my covetousness unless I advertise it to you guys, which I might have a little issue with the 1971 Super Beetle, like I really have seen them everywhere. It's my, it's my carny coming out, my flesh. <laughs> but don't take me too seriously because don't, don't drop off a, a Volkswagen bug on my doorstep. I don't like, I'm, I'm just. But he says, because the law said don't covet, suddenly he recognizes the inside of Paul. What was going on? And not only did, it, did, he, did he see his, 
his coveting. But then in verse 8, he says, it produced in me coveting of every kind. So Paul's going around, look at that guy's house. Look at that guy's car. Look at that guy's synagogue. Look at, oh man. Everywhere he turns, he recognizes that the law is producing this covetousness in everything. And he said, praise be to God for the law that my sin was exposed. He goes into verse 9 and he says, I once was alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking the opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. I'm reading this. Let's see what Paul says. For once, for I was once alive apart from the law. When was Paul ever apart from the law? He was circumcised on the eighth day, a tribe of Benjamin, according to law of Pharisee. He always had the law. So what's he talking about? I once was a, I once was apart from the law. In order to answer this question, I believe that we have to go to Philippians. So if you turn with me over to Philippians chapter 3. I think Philippians chapter 3 explains what Paul was going through. Paul loved the church in Philippi. He, he started the church there. He turned over the church to another pastor. Eventually, Paul was arrested. He, as he wrote Philippians, he sat under arrest in Rome. They send the next pastor to bring a gift, a love offering to Paul, so Paul could fund his stay while he was in jail. And while this guy did that, he became sick and almost died, and the church was getting discouraged. And Paul is writing them a letter to say thank you and to encourage them. And in chapter 3, verse 1, he addresses them, and he says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard for you. What he's talking about is religion where we're more concerned about the outside. And the the point I think Paul's going to make here is that when Paul was under the law, he never knew the law as it was intended. He used the law to make himself out to be more righteous than others, that he looked down on those. And we Christians need to guard ourselves of this. And he says, don't do that. You know, Jesus, when he taught in the Gospels, what did he say? He said, "You've, you've, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. Okay, we can all do this. But then he ups the ante to show the spirit of the law. He says, but I tell you, he who looks with lust upon a woman has committed adultery in his heart. Oh, that shows what the law's intent was to to reveal the sin in our heart. And there were people coming in trying to force religion on these people who are following Christ. And Paul says, it's a safeguard. I'll never tire of talking against religion. It's about a relationship and a walk with Christ. He says, beware of the dogs. And don't get this image of, of Fido, your pet dog here. Think Mexico dog. Mexico dog or a dog in a third world country. They're nasty. They are bad. You're not supposed to touch them. You're supposed to kind of pretend like you kick them. And when you lift your foot in Mexico, dogs scatter because that's how they're treated. And then I bring Americans down to Mexico. And what do they do? Like ones are like pet lovers. They get down and they hug it. And you're like, stop, stop. As the dog's like licking their face. And it's like, who has any of the, you know, the sanitizer stuff? Because this person's on the roof on the way home because I don't know what germs you have. The dogs in Mexico are nasty, nasty, bad. This is what Paul's talking about, this derogatory statement. He says, beware of the dogs. This is how he viewed the religious guys coming along saying, you're supposed to play by our rules. You're supposed to do this. You're supposed to do that. He says, we are the true circumcision. We worship in the spirit of God and the glory of Christ Jesus and put all of our confidence in the flesh. No, that's not what he says. We put no, none, zilch, nada, Nothing, no confidence in the flesh because he knows how terribly wicked his flesh is. We put no confidence in the flesh. Now, verse four, he kind of backs up. Although, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. It's genius. Paul, the apostle is known as the apostle to the Gentiles. 
To me, you would think if you were, if I was God, we're already in trouble when I start thinking this way. If I want to be, reach a bunch of Gentiles, what I need to do is to convert a Gentile and then send a Gentile to go reach the Gentiles. But in God's thinking, there's the Jews who had become so isolated and so pulled back that they thought there was a, a program of God for them and there was a program of God for the Gentiles, but the two did not commingle. The best way to bridge this guy, this gap, is to appoint the the Jewish man with the highest credentials, highest pedigree, and to say, this is my guy to reach the Gentiles. Because as he's bringing the Gentiles into the body of Christ, now we have Jews and Gentiles together, the Jewish legalist would say, they've got to do this, they've got to do that. But Paul could say, oh, you want to start talking about credentials? Well, this is what he says when he goes to his flesh. He says, although I might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone has the mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law. This is the part you guys need to understand. This is Paul the apostle. He says, as it concerns the righteousness, which is found in the law, we're not talking the Ten Commandments. We're talking the 613 commandments found in the Old Testament. And on top of that, the yoke that the rabbis would place, which I don't even know how big that number is. He says, according to his flesh. As soon as I find my place again, verse six, as to the righteousness, which is in the law found blameless. Paul's problem before conversion is he thought he was sinless he could stand in front of a crowd he could show you all of his religion he could show you all of his works he could recite the whole old testament from memory to you he could show his pedigree all the way back to benjamin he studied under gamaliel which was the lead scholar and he said i would look at you and i would say i am without sin I don't know anybody that would do that with a straight face. Even the staunchest of, of religious uh, people today that are legalist, I don't even know many of them that would say, oh, I'm without sin totally completely. But Paul would say, I was blameless. According to the righteousness that's found in the law, I was perfect. That's a bold, bold statement. But then look what happens. One of the best buts in the Bible but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish. And the English waters this down. It's literally dung, manure. We live in Valley Center. We know manure. We all have animals. We had the rodeo last week. He's saying all of that religion was manure. So that I might gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of the faith, that I might know him in the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain the resurrection of the dead. I want to turn back to Romans right now, but I can't skip one of my favorite verses. Another one to highlight, to circle, to, to, to through every page in your Bible, draw a line to this verse. It's a good reminder. This is the Apostle Paul. What does he say? Not that I have already obtained it, or have already become perfect. But I press on so that I may lay hold of. He hasn't attained any. He, he's made progress. But he's still got the flesh. And his spirit is warring with inside. Now we go back to Romans chapter 7. Verse 9. And he says. I once. For I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came. Sin became alive and I died. He was always under the law. But he was misusing the law. He was using the law to build himself up. But the whole purpose of the law was to expose his sinfulness that he would go to Christ. 
And he said, I was alive apart from the law. He was steeped in religion, but he didn't. He missed the whole heart of God. And he says, but when the commandment came, when he met Christ on the road to Damascus and he saw the holiness of God, he suddenly had an appreciation for who he was. And suddenly what the law was became clear to him. Which was to, which was to result in life. The law proved to result in death for me. For sin taking an opportunity through the commandment that his flesh was using God's commandments for sin. Deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin. In order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good. So that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. To put this in perspective, what he's trying to say about the law. You're not feeling well. You haven't been feeling well for a while. So you finally, this is from a guy's perspective. So like two years later, you finally decide maybe I should call the doctor. You call the doctor and you say, I need to make an appointment and I'm not feeling well. They draw your blood. They do all of this stuff. And the doctor says, you know what? My, my tests are inconclusive. What I need to do is to schedule you for an MRI to see if we can figure out what's going on. Then they put you into the MRI. Then you get the phone call, like the phone call. It says, we're sorry, sir, but can you come to the office? We need to talk to you. And the doctor sits you down and he says, you know what? The MRI has revealed that you have a mass of something that we believe is spreading you have cancer, and we believe that we're going we're gonna to go into surgery and we're going to remove what we can or biopsy, figure out what's going on. I almost never have heard anybody leave away from that appointment and say, that MRI, that MRI, it put the cancer there. No, the MRI, all it did was show what was already there. And what Paul is saying is the law didn't condemn him. The law showed him that he was already condemned. It showed him that he was a sinner. And so because of that, he was so thankful that he was then able to do something about it. Can you imagine if our system was set up in a way that, oh, yeah, you get your MRI, the doctor finds out you have cancer. That's too depressing. We're just not going to say, you're doing fine, sir. Go have a great day. Just keep eating fruits and vegetables. You know what? Don't even worry about that. Eat McDonald's because he's thinking this guy's toast. And then we just let him go to his death. That's horrible. But the MRI reveals stuff that we can then battle it. Well, the law shows us the sin in our heart. And it's beautiful because it points us to the remedy, which is Christ. And verse 14 makes me laugh. It's not really funny. But a few weeks ago, I do a lot of ride-alongs. And sometimes these transient people who are on alcohol every now and again just say something that is just profound. And so there I was on a ride along. I was responding to, there were two officers in me. I'm with an officer who's a believer. The other officer is not a believer, but makes fun of us who are believers, which is fun. It's love. And then there was this transient person. And so we kind of helped resolve the situation. The person was taken into custody and was taken down to jail. And as soon as we pull away, all of a sudden, across the CAD machine, which is like how they kind of text message each other, the non-believing officer sends, us to, sends a note to us saying, yeah, now this person's in here just spouting out Romans 714 over and over again. Is this some sort of secret code for you guys? Like kind of like making, and I'm like, I have no idea what Romans 714 is. So I like pull out my phone and I'm like, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold into bondage of sin. And I read that after encountering this transient person. I'm like, you know what? I have no idea the spiritual, like where that person is spiritually. But the wisdom of what they're saying was just powerful to me. It, 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 the, how I, and I'm like, this is just so true. Paul's saying the law is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh sold into bondage of sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing that I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. He he, he says, I I know what I want to do, 
But the things I want to do, I want to do what the Bible says. But, but then I ended up doing what I know I'm not supposed to do. So in my mind, I agree with the law, but my flesh is weak and I don't know what's going on. He goes on to say, so now I no longer am the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find in the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? So as he goes through this turmoil, this is kind of the conclusion, like this is not just the problem is, is that God wants us to think and to consider. And you need to stew over this and, and meditate upon it and ask these questions. But when I see this, I one thing that keeps coming to my mind is in a book that I read. Uh, the, the man shares about a story of a man that he led to Christ and then he meets with this guy like six months later, a year later. And he says, how, how are you doing? And the guy's like, oh, I'm doing really good. I'm, I'm growing in the Lord. And, but I got a real big problem. He's like, well, what's the really big problem? He says, well, well the big sins that I used to do all the time, I, I'm not struggling with those anymore. But my problem is that the little sins have become big sins. And he, he's like, I recognize how holy God is, and, and I see what's going on in my heart. And the first thing I think we need to, to grasp from this passage is don't kid yourself. You're utterly sinful. John tells us in 1 John that if you say that you're without sin, you make him a liar. That we all have sin. We need God's help. But then... The second thing, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, a drifting man. I, I, I read this and I'm going, okay, well, this is Paul. Is he, is he excusing it? Is, is it, it the one phrase I keep hearing over and over again is the devil made me do it. You know, people say, oh, the devil made me do it. So you're basically, you're off scot-free. Oh, no problem. The devil made you do it. Okay. We'll just deal with the spirit side of you and just we'll, we'll, whatever. No problem. This can't. That can't like that. This that doesn't fit. When I look at passages, especially like on our annual business meeting, I start reflecting on my life and my calling as a pastor. And in First Timothy chapter three, the first seven verses lay out the qualifications of an elder. That that when you're looking to find a pastor, how do you examine the person? Those things are are are. are Items that deal with what a mature Christian looks like. Because a good mature Christian should be a good pastor, right? So, so they really apply to everybody. So we see that the scripture holds us to some expectation of maturing along the road. But at the same time, as we look at this maturing process, our legalism, our, our wanting to do religion, we say, oh, well, I've... We've checked all the boxes and now I'm sinless. No, 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 no. That there's this, the, the maturing process, there's this tension. As we mature, we recognize, we grow closer to God. We see his holiness. Our sinfulness is magnified, even though we're growing more to be like Christ. And so often when people are chosen for leadership that are humbly following after Christ, normally their number one response is, I don't feel qualified. It's like, amen, neither do I. But praise be to God that he's justified me and I'm walking with him and I want to produce his fruit in my life. And this whole passage goes to chapter 8. But notice verse 25 or verse 24 to end with this. He says, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
So then, on the one hand, I myself, with my mind, am serving the law of God. But on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. I just want to point out, it doesn't say conviction. It says condemnation. Conviction is a gift from God that we who are in Christ will be terribly convicted when our sinful nature gets the best of us. When you feel guilty or convicted, praise be to God because that's his spirit giving you the warning light. Hey, follow after me, follow after me. And then we see in the next few verses, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. We're going to see the spirit of God some, I don't know, 15 times in the next 20 verses. So we have this war going on. The secret is we need Jesus. We need to cling to him. We need to walk with him. As we yield with him, his fruit will bear in our, bear out in our life. And it's a process. And I'm terribly comforted by Romans chapter 7. Because there's only one person who is perfect in all of the Bible, and that's Jesus. The rest of us bow down and worship him and walk with him. And he does the work that one day when we go to be with him, we'll be freed from this wretched body, this terrible dual nature that we have. I imagine if you went to go see Billy Graham right now, who's doing very poorly in his health, one of the greatest evangelists in our nation, there's certainly the living evangelist, say, hey, Billy, when did you like master like dealing with your sin? I imagine he'd look at you and smile and say, you know what? Still dealing with it. And I long for the day when the Lord takes me home and I'll be in heaven with my wife and I'll be there freed from this body. So, Father, we do thank you and praise you, Lord. Lord, this is a tough chapter and and I pray, Lord, that you would help us to take away that which you want us to take away. Father, we thank you that our position with you is bound completely upon Christ's work on the cross. We thank you that as we believed in the gospel, Father, that your sovereign act to justify us, to declare us righteousness, that you imputed Christ's righteousness to us, Lord, is something that I don't know that we can fully comprehend. Father, I pray for each person here. Maybe there's some that don't know you as Savior, that they're trying to work away through doing good deeds to earn their way to salvation. Father, I pray that you would you would wear them out with that to show them the, the frailty and the, just the ineffectiveness that that causes, Lord. That you would point them to Christ, that Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. Father, we long to walk with you, Lord. Help us. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.